I want to start, but I have lots of scriptures today, so can you bear with me? We're going to hit a lot of different places in the Bible. Is that all right? Okay. So we're going to read two scriptures together, and then I'm going to get some group participation. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Funny, this is what we're doing right now, right? Good old February, get all your stuff in the mail. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So this is from the book of Romans, which Paul wrote to one of the biggest and most important churches in the world at that time. And this is part of his gospel, helping Christians live in the world. Now, we're going to travel to another end of the spectrum. We're going to go hit the book of Revelations. And if you have read that lately, you know that about halfway through or near the second half, we're introduced to this Uh, individual called the harlot or the prostitute who's riding a beast who symbolically stands as i understand it for for rome which would be the same government power that paul is writing about here and it's prophesying the day that the city of rome would be sacked and the power of rome would be destroyed and here's a verse about how uh, people respond to it so there's a bunch of all the people who loved Rome, they, they lament here, but there's some other stuff going on. It says, and they threw dust on their heads. This is the merchants and people who loved trading with Rome because it made them wealthy. As they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single, single hour, she has been laid waste. And this, I don't know if this is John or an angel speaking at this point, I kind of forget. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven. And you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And skipping down a little bit, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, for the salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures that you meet at the beginning of the book fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. And I would just guess that between Romans 13 and Revelations 18 and 19, where one is like, be subject to the governing authorities for the sake of God and get ready to rejoice with singing when God destroys the governing authorities... You have all the whole spectrum of every attitude you could have about government. But these are both in the Bible. Let's do a little show of hands. Which one, who amongst us more naturally is inclined to be a Romans 13 kind of person? You know, come on, you guys, we're, we're, we're family here or not or whatever. Or you just showed up, but just put up your hand. Who's a Romans 13 kind of person? Okay, good. And who's more of a Revelations 18, 19 kind of person? Okay, yeah, and of course, they make the noise, you know. 
The Romans 13 are just like, I'll do it because you asked me to, but I don't like showing this. And then the Romans, yeah, look at this hand. This hand is up. Look at it. Okay, so who's more naturally just a rule follower in general? Okay, who's not? Who thinks rules keep people safe? Who thinks rules make people stupid? Okay. Welcome to the real world, brothers and sisters in Christ. If the Bible has both perspectives, and you know which one you're more naturally inclined to, it's up to you to manage your soul in a godly way. Do you know what I mean? If you're more inclined, inclined to Revelations 18:19, praise Jesus and I'm glad you're here and we need you. We need the boundary pushers. We need the, the resistant people. We need you on the mission field with Muslims, most likely, right? Like, you know what I mean? I don't know if Steinbeck needs you because we're just, we're pretty peaceful here. But if you want to like, Jump out of an airplane for Jesus. You go talk to Darnell and Christy, and they can hook you up with that, I'm sure. And if you're a Romans 13 person, you have a soul, you have inclinations, and we need to bring all of our natural inclinations to Jesus for purification and application in a way that's best for his kingdom. Amen? But it's good to just kind of admit, I'm happy. Speed limits, I'm okay with them. You know, you pick your speed limit and then you set it to like one kilometer ahead. So I'm obeying, but I'm also, you know, you do the math. I've driven for an hour. I'll be one kilometer closer after that hour, which is really good. This is what I want to say. This is going to be my nutshell for the day. I think this is a good way to look at this world that has government in it. Respect the will of God, resist the work of the beast, and run in your calling from Christ. I think this is wisdom. I could be wrong. It's your brain. But I think this is wisdom. Respect the will of God. And we'll look at that. Resist the works of the beast. And we'll look at that. And at the end of the day, you're called to run in your calling from Christ. That's the most important thing, and that's going to help you sort out all the issues. You are called to obey Jesus and serve him. And sometimes that makes life easier, and sometimes it makes life harder. Amen? But I think this is wisdom, and I think this is a biblical perspective to have as we read the book. Okay. So now we're going to have a brief history Can I get my stuff on there as well? Is that possible? A brief history of of government in the Bible without notes. Here we go. If you think I get anything wrong here or you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just read the Bible. It takes about 70 hours straight. You know, you could be done before next Sunday if you try. We first meet government in the Bible when we meet God. In the beginning was God, and he is a governor. He's a ruler, and he's never met anything that he isn't in control of. 
And you see him as he's creating. He says, I want this to happen, and then it happens. I want light, then there's light. I want an expanse, and an expanse. And he is being a ruler and a governor, and he governs his creation that he's making with unstoppable, overwhelming authority and power. And then if you wonder what government is, it really is, a, a nutshell would be, having the authority to do good. That's what it's supposed to be. To bring order where there's chaos, to bring light where there's darkness, to bring life where there is no life. That is government in its purest form in God's expression of it. But then we see him investing government into the world. The first way we meet it is when he makes the uh, lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And he says, I want you to govern time, essentially. Your job is to mark out days and months and years as the moon changes shape. You see the months going by as the sun goes around the uh, earth, though later we tweak that. Um, you get years marked off, and the, you, he put all this stuff in the sky to help people see time passing, but he says, you're governing it. And then he tells the fish and the birds to be governing their areas, and eventually he makes man and woman in his image, and he says, increase and multiply and hold dominion. And that hold dominion is he's like investing human beings with the, the right and the responsibility to bring government. So if you are a human, guess what? You're in government. You were made to govern. You were made to at least have authority over your own self and not let chaos and death and darkness overwhelm your being, but instead to bring order and life and light to who you are. But throughout your life to have spheres of responsibility where you bring God's truth, light, and life with whatever you're in charge of, whether it's your bed or your bedroom or a house or a job or a car. Ooh, <laughs> don't know how good I do with that, but it runs. Um, this is what we were made to do. And God's world is not, it, he didn't make a perfect world. This is one of the things, we, you know, the environmentalists think, if you could just get rid of people, then you'd have a perfect world. No, 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 no. God made a world full of mess and potential, and he wants people to bring out the best through their interactions with the world. There's mess and potential, and through government and dominion, we're supposed to make this place better than it would have been without us. So man and woman and all of their children have invested a sense of being here to rule in God's place. We're his image bearers, and I'm going for it. Um, that image bearing kind of comes from Old Testament times where a king would make a little statue of himself and he'd put it in a town and he would say, I'm ruling over you guys and you can tell because my little statue's in your town. Right? It's like for us where somebody has their face on the back of our coins as a way of letting everybody know every time you buy something till it went digital, who's the boss? Queen Elizabeth. And soon to be King Charles, I guess. That will be so weird. And we're that. We're God's little statues walking around the world telling creation that God is the boss. But, and then when he made Adam and Eve, he put Adam in charge of the garden. He said, your job is to keep this thing. But then everything went south. 
And people sinned, and we were exiled, and our souls were corrupted, and our spirits became uh, highly susceptible to demonic influence. And what happened was we ended up in this place where evil was kind of more powerful than righteousness. Because whoever was willing to kill somebody else was really boss. And you ended up with this very violent world, and God's response to this was Noah and the flood. That was the problem. There's violence. It was like Cain. Like Cain's like, I don't like Abel. Abel's dead. And people realized, like, you can just take over places by killing people. And whoever is best at killing gets to be boss. And God flooded the world because of the violence in the world, but then when um, it turned out sin was still in the world. He did this thing, and I don't know if you've ever caught this, but he said after the flood, um, he who sheds blood, the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. And this is the beginning of like what we might call secular government, but it's the authority of people to elect someone to carry a sword to defend the good of the people against people who would otherwise do crimes. Because God's not just going to keep flooding the earth every time it gets too violent. Instead, he appointed as image bearers that some of us would get guns to stop the people who do evil with guns. If I can say it like that. Does that make sense? And that's part of what came out of the flood. I can't just keep killing everybody. What we're going to do is you guys can appoint people to carry the sword to resist the fact that evil people can tend to overcome the non-evil people unless there is a mechanism to resist that. Well, as the earth grew and spread, people spread, they started getting together in cities and they would uh, appoint kings who would be those people that carried weapons and sometimes they did good, sometimes they did bad. Abraham had a family, blah, 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 blah. They end up in Egypt. Egypt kind of starts off pretty good because with Joseph, you get a picture of government doing good. Joseph says there's going to be this big famine and Pharaoh responds with faith. And he, by taxing the grain, Pharaoh enables the rescuing of human life. You tracking with me? Because he had the authority to say, we're going to take a bit of everything we make for the next seven years. When the famine finally came that would have killed everybody, there was the resources to sustain people through that time. And that is a picture of God's will working well through government. You tracking with me? If they had disobeyed that, they would have been dead. Because they obeyed that, not only did God's people survive, but actually, <laughs> like everybody else did too. But it wasn't just people running around doing their own thing. There was like a centralized authority to make something happen that saved life. But then not too much later, you see things going really bad because with Pharaoh becoming really exalted through his granary exploits, he turns out to become a tyrant and then he sees Israel growing and now he's going to use his swords not to protect his citizens but to kill the sons of some of his citizens. And it goes real, real, real bad. So after about 400 years, Moses takes Israel out and they become their own government. First time ever, they become their own nation, which explains why um, the Pentateuch is kind of strange to us. 
Because it's a book that has to deal with all kinds of stuff that the church doesn't have to deal with. Because they're trying to be their own nation. It's not like a church book. It's a nation book. Which is why it talks about things like, um, what, what do you do with people when they go bankrupt? In the church, that's not our job. I mean, you pray for them. And you talk about their heart, maybe. But we don't have to say, well, you're going to be a slave for seven years. But they had this season of their own government under the law of Moses, moving into the promised land that eventually turned into a kingship. But because they were ultimately unfaithful after a few centuries, God says, uh, this is over. There's a couple of exiles. And Israel goes to living underneath the Babylonian government. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. But they go into exile, and now a pagan superpower is ruling over the people. And this is where we get this great book of Daniel, where we learn about uh, a couple of things. And this is where I'm coming from with this idea of the beasts. Okay? So I've got this thing on my finger. Done. But just in summary, government is God's idea. He puts it into the world. He invests it in people in lots of different kinds of ways. He invests it in a very important way in what we would call civil government for the good of the people and the protection of them and the suppression of evil. But sometimes the government does a good job and sometimes it does a terrible job. And here is now Daniel living under the Babylonian Empire, which is like the biggest, strongest nation that had existed up to this point, at least in biblical history. I'm not sure about China. And there's these two stories. I just want to contrast these. So we're pressing pause on the history, but just look at what happens here. So there's these two stories. And the first one is um, this time Nebuchadnezzar, who's like the king over Babylon, he has this dream about a big statue. You're tracking with me here? Anybody... Sunday school, someone put up your hand that you remember this. Okay, good. And so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in this dream he sees this big statue, and the top part is gold, and then somewhere around the the top upper torso is silver, and then the belly is bronze, and the leg is iron, and the feet are iron mixed with clay. And he doesn't tell anybody's dream, and he's really unsettled by it, and he demands that all his wise men and magicians tell him the dream and the interpretation, or he's going to kill them all. You think you live in a high-stress job? And... um, Daniel says, don't do anything. I'll pray. I'll seek the God of heaven and he'll give you his response. And God shows up for Daniel and tells him both the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel comes back to the king and says, this was your dream about this big statue. And after you saw this statue in all of its glory, this pebble comes down and smashes the feet of the statue and knocks it over. And the whole thing is blown away in dust. And this little pebble grows to be a mountain as big as the whole world. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, you're right, bah! and then he promotes him to being the prime minister of his entire empire. And as Daniel interprets it, he says this is a prophetic picture of a succession of empires. Starting with yours, which is going to be the most glorious, but then another one and another one and another one. And then about four or five empires later, there's going to be this event where God smashes the human way of doing things and builds his own holy mountain that's going to fill the earth. And mountains in the Old Testament are almost always synonymous with places of worship. You go to the mountaintop to worship God. 
But that's Nebuchadnezzar's picture of it. Well, about a few verses later, I'll read this. Um, well, you can read it. So there's a statue in a mountain. Well, about six, five, five chapters later, Daniel starts having his own dreams. And in his dream, he sees a bunch of beasts. And first, there's this, this lion thing with some wings on its back, and it's doing around, doing some nasty business. And then this bear shows up who, like, is eating ribs, which is maybe a good thing for us, but back then probably wasn't a great sign. And the bear is just trashing the place. And then there's this leopard, if memory serves me, and it's got, like, four heads and a bunch of wings. And then there's this other beast that doesn't even tell us exactly what kind of animal it was. It just is like this monster beast that's violent and destructive. And then after these beasts come, you have this arrival of this Son of Man. It says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. But this is the trick. As far as I understand Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol dream and Daniel's beast dreams are describing the same historical succession of empires that culminates with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Nation, 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 ending with like the Greeks or the Greco-Roman Empire, And then the arrival of the Son of Man who comes and smashes the succession of human empires and builds a kingdom which will spread throughout the entire planet, establishing one like the Son of Man as ruler over all forever. But the thing that's interesting is that when Nebuchadnezzar dreams about people and empires, he sees this wonderful human statue of accomplishment. And when Daniel dreams about human empires, he sees these mutant beasts of destructive power. And they're the same thing in history. And I think a wise believer will hear this and see this and go, in God's world, there is something about government that is from the Lord. Even Daniel says, you know, God has made you, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. Not like you did it on your own or your pagan idols did this for you. No, the God of the universe set you up by his own will to be the king of kings. Boom, that was God's will. And the way you behave is more beastly than human. And over time, the empires became less and less like regular creatures and more and more like mutant monsters. But I think a wise Christian will look at every government and say, there's something about this thing that is God's will that deserves my respect. Because it's from God. And there's something about unbelieving governments that will be beastly. Which someone who knows the Lord should resist. Does that make sense? So, 
Personal story time. Uh, you guys all know that I'm a, a wonderful skier. <laughs> I just love talking about sports stuff because I can hear you thinking. Um, I grew up skiing. My dad was in the ski hill. I grew up at Whistler Mountain, and then he worked for Silver Star for a long time, which is in near Vernon. And so I just grew up skiing, and every once in a while, you know, the school would take us skiing as well, even though I did it quite a bit. But I wasn't a fanatic about it. I, um, I fell down too much trying to do tricks to get really excited about it. But it was a good day. But I'd have this one memory of going to ski at this hill where my dad worked. And he was quite up there. I think he was like the general manager of the ski hill at the time. And I got put in this one class. And so there was a ski instructor with me and some other classmates. And I remember the ski instructor was like, what's your name? Oh, Rob Balfour. And he's like, like, are you related to Rick Balfour? And I'm like, yeah. And he says, oh, your dad signs my paychecks. And he probably conducted himself a little bit differently, knowing that my dad was probably going to ask me at the end of the day how it went. True fact. But for me, this is a picture of Christians in the world. Our dad is the boss of all the governments. But if I went into that ski class and I was a jerk to that instructor because my dad signs his paychecks, would my dad have been impressed with me? Would I have gotten another Nintendo game next time I wanted one? Would I have gotten to participate in Friday Pizza Night? Unlikely. But if that guy had mistreated me, would my dad have done something about it? You bet. And I think that is a way we can do life in the world. Every government is responsible to our dad. My dad has a culture he wants me to treat his servants with. And if his servants muck about, he knows how to drop the hammer. Does that make sense? Our job is to respect the will of God and to resist the beast. And he was a good instructor, and I fell down on the moguls way too much, and he was very patient with me. I didn't actually want to be in the mogul class. I just wanted to go do nothing on the green runs. But whatever. It wasn't my choice. But I think we see this even in the life of Daniel. I think about Daniel. You know, we know that Daniel's a hero because we read the book. True? We read the book. We know he's the hero. I wonder sometimes if we were living through those times and we were just regular Jewish people, if we wouldn't hear Daniel get called a race traitor, if we wouldn't hear Daniel get called like, how could you work for these guys? How could you serve these guys? How could you collect taxes for these guys? We could see him as absolutely betraying the people of God. Because he's in the palace. He's number two guy in the palace. But we would have no clue about how much Daniel was doing for his people from the position of power he was given. True? And I try to remember this 
Because I do know that we have brothers and sisters who in the last few years were in positions of influence near us. And I can guarantee you, you have not heard all that they've done to make our experience better than it could have been. Some of us have heard this, but I bet you most of you have no clue what the behind the doors conversations went and what did not happen because they were there that could have happened. But their testimony is, some of these people, that they didn't necessarily get treated very great by their brothers and sisters while they were trying to serve the Lord and us from where they were, to put it mildly. So I think of Daniel, and I just go, I just know Daniel would have gotten raked over the coals most days by the Jewish community in Babylon, even while he was kneeling for prayer every day, no matter what, even though he was thrown in the lion's den because he wouldn't bow his heart knees to the pagan kings, but he would serve them because God called him to. Crazy, huh? I did send an email, just for for clarity, I think I was like 90% okay with my emails with the government people being respectful and offering perspectives. One time I sent a text and then I phoned to repent. That's the truth. I think all of us had like our worst day one time. Do you know what I mean? Some of us may have had successions of worst days. But we can, if you're looking back, you're like, yeah, I shouldn't have. You can always say sorry. Because what's important is your freedom moving forward into the future. That's, that's the most, this is the whole reason why I'm talking about this. I'm not saying, oh, obey the government. I want you to be free in Jesus. And misunderstandings about how God rules the world will not lead us to being free in Jesus. Getting upset about stuff when we're not supposed to or having gotten upset but not dealing with it isn't freedom in Jesus. My biggest desire is that you would be as free as possible to accomplish the purposes of God in the midst of whatever the man or the beast is doing over us. That's my heart for us. So I want to look at Jesus a little bit, and then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. Just one story out of a, out of a million or 900,000 stories that we could look at the Apostle Paul, how he dealt with this as a Christian. But this is the age we live in now. And I just picked one passage. It could be uh, a bunch. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians here. They're having a disagreement about what's going to happen with the resurrection. Some people were saying that the resurrection already happened, and it's just spiritual. But the truth is it hasn't happened yet, and it is physical. And Paul is giving them some expectations about, excuse me, what's going on in the present and what's going to happen in the future. And so he says this. uh, But each to his own order, forget that part. Christ, the first fruit, so Christ is the first person resurrected from the dead. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Jesus comes back, everybody who belongs to him is going to be resurrected. People disagree about some of the details here, but don't worry. God's got it. It's all going to work out in the end. 24. Then the end comes when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Doesn't it sound like Daniel a bit? 
For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, which is a great, complicated Greek sentence put into English, which essentially he's just saying, when God puts everything under Jesus' feet, he isn't saying God the Father is also going under Jesus' feet. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And what he's saying is the time we're in right now is a time where Jesus is the government. He's on the throne of heaven and his job is to overcome every kind of authority that stands against his kingdom. And there's lots of discussion about what that's going to look like. And guess what? You and I had no idea what the last five years were going to look like five years ago. So we just have trust. But Jesus is commissioned by God to be the boss and to overcome all kinds of authorities that stand against him. And then when he's done that, to come back and raise all his people from the dead and then deliver back to the Father everything he has overcome for the glory of the Father. And then it's going to be party time forever. Rivers of schmone fat, mountains of farmer's sausage, Ploats to fill the oceans, ladders of Big Macs up to the moon, which is cheese. Don't believe the conspiracy that it's just rocks. It's cheese. Or I will do something about it in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to need a lot of cows. But in this age, we are... The people being used by Jesus while he does this. Okay? It's crazy. But this is the mission. When he went back up to heaven, he, God didn't just say, you're the Walmart greeter for the dead, Jesus. You just stand here. When someone dies, you say, welcome to heaven. Don't steal nothing and go back. That should be really cool. Um, He has a job right now to overcome the beasts. He's the boss of the beasts. He has beat the beasts. But in history, his job is to overcome the beasts. And he does that through people who want to run hard with the calling that he's given us. That's, That's how he wants to do it. It's through us just being obsessed with the mission of Christ. And so here's one little story about... Oh yeah, respect the will of God. God has made the governments. They're accountable to him. Sometimes they become so beastly that they are they do deserve our resistance in godly ways. But our big job is to run in your calling of Christ. And so here's the Apostle Paul. Just one little story I'm going to read. Then we'll be wrapped up. You know the Apostle Paul. He was an enemy of the church, an enemy of Christ. Then... Jesus uses his unlimited authority to just show up one day and say, no, 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 what you were doing is done. Now you're going to serve me, and it's going to hurt a lot and hurt a lot and hurt a lot. Then you're going to die. And Paul's like, okay, well, you're raising the dead, so I can't say no. And so he, um, 
has been planting churches, writing letters, and now he's on mission to go to Jerusalem because he's been told that in Jerusalem he'll get arrested and eventually he'll be sent to Rome to go and preach the gospel to Caesar. That's the mission. Well, he's arrested here, and we get this great little scene. The Romans are in charge of Paul, but they aren't quite sure why he's so controversial. And so they want to take him to a meeting with the Jewish leaders and try to figure out what's going on, and this is what happens. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, um, he, that must be the Roman centurion, unbound him, Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and sent before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day, which is true. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. That hurts. Then Paul said to him, and this is, I just love this, this little picture into Paul's soul. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Boom! That's some resisting the beast right there. You tracking me? You're going to judge me and you don't even keep the law? I just said something true and you had me punched in the face? Who are you to judge? So that's resist the beast. True? Fact? You got that? Okay. And there's a little curveball. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Okay, so top Jewish government guy. Are you going to just slam him? Watch Paul's response. And Paul said... I didn't know, brothers, that that, he was the high priest. You know, Paul has eyesight problems, most likely. He's just, you know, perfectly blind. He doesn't know who's doing what. I didn't know that that was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of your people, a ruler of your people. Okay, so he, he says, okay, whoops. Paul says, whoops. Because God's word said, Don't trash rulers of your people in public like that. And probably not in your heart, too. But for sure, for sure, there's a a law about that. So Paul isn't just going like, you broke this, right? No, no, you you gave me permission to break God's law because you didn't break God's law. No, you did break God's law. He says, okay, you can't do that. You're breaking God's law. Are you going to talk to the high priest like that? No, I'm not because I'm told not to. Which looks a lot like respecting the will of God, even when it doesn't feel good. Do you see both those things going on there? Okay, now if you're tracking with me, you should be going, I bet he's going to talk about running and his calling for Christ. You know, you're just be thinking ahead. I'm, I'm signaling here. And then he looks at this crowd and he says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Because the Sadducees didn't believe in that. The Pharisees did. And so he just starts going, this is my hope. And he's, he's like being like Mac. And he's trying to start a fight by, by dropping some theological titles here. And I didn't take the bait. Because I saw that one coming. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, skipping forward, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Boom. 
You see all those three things in there, right? In this one story, the Apostle Paul, how does he manage the complexity of being on trial before the government? A little bit resist the beast, a little bit respect the will of God, and a lot, let's just make this about Jesus again and see what happens. And then Jesus shows up and says, add a boy, and we're going to add a times 10 multiplier on this. We're going to Rome. True? Okay. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Some people think we're like in the end times, end times. Could be. Lots of people have thought that. Everyone's been wrong up to now. But could be. But if it is true that it's going to get a lot worse soon, we need a lot more this being how we handle it. Because the worse things get, the more this bottom line is the most important thing you're doing. True? And there are going to be times when you need to resist the beast. I love that what one American um, evangelist, mission, missionary kid said one time when he saw all the people, I think Andrew may have shared this with me, all the people like being like, we have to do everything the government says. He said, what are you guys doing? You guys spend millions of dollars a year sending missionaries overseas to not obey the governments there. You send them to China to not listen to China when they say don't spread the gospel. You send them to like all kinds of places to be respectful to the leaders, but to go and do things they don't want you to, them to do. Does that make sense? And he's like, and he's just, he was just saying, don't forget the middle one and the bottom one in the name of the top one. That makes sense. But also... Don't do the middle one so bad that it don't look like you can do the top one. Because you've actually forgotten that you're supposed to be doing the bottom one. Does that make sense? True fact? Okay. I want you to be free. I want you to be so free in Jesus. And I think that that people are going to keep doing stuff that will drive us crazy if we let them. I am right now doing stuff that drives people crazy. I can tell you for a fact how I lead drives some people crazy. You're welcome. You have an opportunity to grow in Jesus like crazy. I, I, I'm, I just know I'm God's gift to Steinbeck because I am like the worst front flat tire on a bike any church could have requiring everybody else to learn how to pedal harder and balance better in order to make this thing work. I know, you go, you don't know my life. You don't know what it's like over in the staff area. I just sit around going, when are they going to all realize <laughs> that they're amazing? <laughs> But I just want you to be so free. I guess I'll just ask that. Do you feel free yet? To just run hard in whatever God's called you to be. Amen? Do you feel free yet? I don't always. Some of the stuff that is happening is so horrible. Some of the stuff people advocate for who are above towards people below is just mutilation it's evil it's so wrong and they think they're so right and they think god can never do anything about it and it can drive someone crazy 
the right response is to get filled with the Spirit, to get on mission with what God wants each one of us to do, and to go do that hardcore. Because whatever good and godly stuff we have enjoyed as a people has been because other people did that with their generation. So much of the stuff we're afraid we're going to lose was bought by people who did running hard after their calling in Christ. Not by being afraid of what might happen, not by being bitter because of what has happened, but because they said yes to the move of God, God moved. And now there is no point being afraid of losing something God gave us by his own power. It's his right to take it away if he wants to, but the only way we're worthy of it is to go hard ourselves in our time. And to say, I don't want to keep the past. I want a better future in Jesus. God is not done yet. His bag of tricks is not empty. He has not run out of inventive things since someone made the internet. He knows exactly what he's capable of. And we are in a time where there is so much hunger and thirst for something real. Especially amongst the young people. All the promises of secular world to make you happy has been swallowed up in anxiety and to change who you are with chemicals and surgery is being proven to be ineffective and nothing can satisfy their hearts but the living Jesus loving them with his shed blood and his poured out spirit and he can do it. And he is doing it and he will do it. But we need to be with Jesus and bring our genuine love. This is all we have. And nobody else has it. Genuine love by the power of the Spirit. This is all we have to offer the world is Jesus himself But nobody else has anything close to it these days. It's so fake. It's so empty. It's so broken. It's so bankrupt. All it does is produce the angriest, bitterest people. But we cannot fight fire with fire. We fight fire with blood. There is no like judging people through this. So you got to be able to resist the beast and love the minions of the beast, the deceived of the beast, the people who are caught up, the people being devoured by it. They can only be loved better. We can only be loved better. We can only be loved better. We can only be loved better by a Jesus who chooses us and calls us and loves us like we're someone we aren't. And then you start getting better when you're loved like you aren't by God himself. So we should have some confidence here. Jesus wants to use your love. Boom! Boom! 
boom, boom. Jesus wants to use your love, your love. Ah, gifts are fine, but he wants to use your love. Give me a loser who loves and not someone who's gifted and doesn't. Love, he wants to use your love. He wants to use your love. And if you don't have the love, I know the source of all love. His name is the Holy Spirit of the Father. He can fill you full of his love. You're so powerful when you love. You're so useful when you love. Anything's possible through your love. And me too. Me too. The, it's the, okay. I, the, the revival is starting. The theme is use my love. In Steinbeck, the theme is use my love. Who does t-shirts? Yeah, don't put up your hand. This guy's crazy. (laughs) Get another coffee and let's get out of here. This is our prayer. Use my love. Use my love. Use my love. Use my love. Use my love, Jesus. And I just think about how loveless I can be and then I'm back to the flat tire thing. But Jesus wants to prove a point. Fishermen, tax collectors, ex-prostitutes, these were his secret weapon in his life. These were his holy ones sent to spread the kingdom throughout the world. Use our love. Amen.